0: Pray before we look further at this passage together. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this passage of Scripture uh, and we encounter you, the real God, in this passage, uh, we pray that we would comprehend you each more clearly and that as we see you more clearly as to who you are, uh, that we would respond in a right and proper and reverent way to that. To your glory we ask. Amen. Uh, What comes into your mind when you think about God? Uh, What sort of being do you picture? How do you feel in the presence of this God? Uh, What emotions do you find welling up inside of you? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet has an encounter with the living God. And he sees God as he really is, and it transforms him that uh, he is humbled, he is cleansed, and he is then commissioned. And as God reveals himself to us through his word this morning, uh, we too can have an encounter with him as he really is. And it can indeed transform us, and we can be more deeply moved to marvel at the gospel of grace. So let's look more closely at our passage today. The first thing we see is the God who is holy. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Uh, King Uzziah had had a long and a prosperous reign. Uh, He was the king of Judah for over 50 years, and his fame spread far and wide. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we see that although he started well, he didn't end well. He became proud, and he became arrogant. Look at 2 Chronicles 26 verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uh, he proudly and rashly takes for himself a role which only the priests were allowed to do. And so the high priest, uh, Azariah, and 80 priests courageously challenge the king. Uh, they urge him to stop and to leave the sanctuary of the temple at once. However, the king doesn't take their rebuke very well, and so the Lord acts in judgment on him. He strikes King Uzziah down with leprosy. There and then, instantaneously. Uh, tragically, King Uzziah spent his final years living in isolation. And in 740 BC, he died a leper. Where had King Uzziah gone wrong? Well, I think at the heart of it, he had a wrong view of God. You see, he'd got t- a too far a bigger view of himself... And far too small a view of God. Uh, in in a sense, he had got God out of perspective. He got him badly wrong. He'd seriously underestimated what God was like, and people throughout the ages have done the same at their peril. Uh, what was it about God that King Isaiah lost sight of? Well, Isaiah the prophet finds out. Again, chapter six, verse one of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Isaiah was given a vision of the king, the true king, the king of all kings, in his awesome majesty and his holiness. The Lord, if you notice, is described, to forgive the pun, in towering terms. He is high and lifted up. Uh, Isaiah must have felt like a little ant gazing up at this throne above him. The Lord God of the entire universe seated in a seat of supreme authority and power. Look at verse 2. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. We're told above him were seraphs, literally translated, the burning ones. These fiery heavenly creatures waiting on their seated master, ready to do his bidding. Each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces. Even these heavenly creatures can't look on God. They have to cover their faces in the face of his awesome majesty. And with two, they covered their feet. Maybe that's signifying that they were ready to do whatever God bid them to do. And with two, they were flying. Now, then, if you had been with Isaiah in the temple that day, do you think you would have reacted? How do you think you've reacted as you beheld the king in all his majesty towering over you? At the very least, uh, you would have a sense of awe. You'd be saying, wow, Uh, it would be breathtaking, uh, jaw-dropping. Perhaps it would be a little like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and trying to take in what is before you, this incredible vista. Uh, Maybe it would be like sitting on a tiny kayak as an ocean liner goes past you only a few meters away. But that is not all that Isaiah sees that day. Not only does he see God in all his majesty, but also all his holiness. Verse 3. And they, the seraphs, are calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. That God is holy means that he is... Separate from us. Uh, He is utterly distinct from us. Uh, He's distinct from us in two ways. Firstly, he is transcendent. That means he stands apart from all others and from all creation. Now Isaiah 40 verse 25 brings this out very nicely. It says this, To whom will you compare me, says God, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. He alone is the creator and everything else is created. Uh, But secondly, holiness doesn't just speak of God's transcendence. It also speaks of his righteousness. Uh, God is distinct from us in being absolutely pure, perfect, just and right, uh, without any sin. Uh, God is purer than pure. He possesses a white-hot purity now in Hebrew uh, the Hebrew language one way to express a superlative that is the highest degree of something is to repeat the word so uh, in 2 Kings 25 verse 15 uh, it's translated pure gold but in Hebrew it's actually rendered literally gold gold that is the way you express a superlative but here the seraphs have invented a super superlative For God to express how completely and utterly holy he is. They don't just say holy, holy. They say holy, holy, holy. He is the essence of holiness. Verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Uh, so powerful are the voices of the seraphs that the foundations of the temple are shaken it would have felt like the building was about to collapse and in it to add effect smoke fills the temple which of course makes it all very scary and terrifying this is the presence of god and Isaiah is there in his very presence so coming back to us do you have a picture in your mind of what God is like. How does your vision of God compare to what Isaiah beheld that day? You sometimes hear, of course, people saying, I'd like to think of God as, and then they fill in the blank. But this is what God is really like. Awesome. Staggeringly awesome in his majesty and his holiness. He is high and lifted up and seated on the throne of supreme power what do you think it would be like to meet such a God Uh, what was it like for Isaiah verse 5 continues he says this woe to me I cried I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people Of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is how it feels to be in the presence of God. It wasn't just the wow of standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, it was also the woe of being in fear of one's life. Isaiah says, I am ruined. There is no hope for me it wasn't just you see that Isaiah felt small in the presence of some awesome greatness Isaiah knew he was a sinner in the presence of awesome holiness Uh, Charles Kingsley was a 19th century clergyman he was also a reformer and a writer he wrote a famous book called The Water Babies And in this book, there is a boy called Tom, and his job is a chimney sweep. One day, in a huge mansion, Tom loses his way crawling inside the maze of flues and chimneys. And instead of crawling out down the kitchen chimney, he crawls out onto the hearth in a spotless white bedroom, where a lovely little girl lies asleep between immaculately white sheets. And in this room, there is not a speck of dirt to be seen anywhere. Tom, this little orphan chimney sweep, gazes around him, enchanted by his first sight of such beauty and such cleanliness. He had never imagined that anything so spotless and lovely could exist. And suddenly, he catches sight of a filthy little creature, sooty black, from head to toe, standing on the rose-pink carpet with pools of black perspiration dripping from its body. Such an object was so shocking and out of place in such a surrounding that he shook his fist in return and shouted furiously, Get out of here at once! But the creature shook its fist in return. And suddenly... For the first time in his life, poor little Tom realized that he was looking in a mirror and seeing himself as he really was. And it broke his heart. Uttering a desolate and despairing cry, he rushed out of the house, sobbing as he went, I must be clean, I must be clean. Where can I find a stream of water and wash and be clean? Seeing God in his holiness is like being dropped down into that spotless white room. We suddenly see ourselves as we really are. We look in the mirror and we see a filthy chimney sweep. So out of place in such a spotless surrounding. And we feel ashamed, condemned and afraid and we cry. Woe is me, for I am ruined. That was Isaiah's experience. As he saw God in his white-hot purity and sinlessness, he became mortifyingly aware of how dirty he was. You see, Isaiah now sees his sin for the black, slimy muck that it is. It dawns on Isaiah that his sin is not just the wrong things he's done, it even encompasses the right things he's done for the wrong motives. He realizes that even his good works are like filthy, sooty rags. And he now realizes he's helpless, he's filthy, he cannot wash, He now realizes he needs grace. Because without God's grace, all is lost. For those of us whose faith in Christ was nurtured in a Christian home, it's possible that we have grown up with an unbalanced view of God. Just think for a moment what is the most predominant way in which you view God? I'd wager that, (coughs) pardon me, the main way in which we view God, the way we default to thinking about Him, is as our Heavenly Father. And of course, that He is. But He is also the God who is holy, holy, holy. Who are we more like, Uh, Isaiah or Uzziah? For they stand in stark contrast to each other. Uh, King Uzziah lost all sense of God's majesty, his might, and his holiness. And consequently, you see, as his view of God became distorted, so did his view of himself. As his fearful respect for God diminished, so his pride and arrogance grew. And he overreached himself and ultimately fell foul of God's judgment. Isaiah, on the other hand, had that clarity that brought humility. As his understanding of God became clearer and sharper, his view of himself was modified accordingly. He then saw with clear eyes the majesty, might, and holiness of God. And then he saw with mortifying horror his comparable filth and unworthiness. And he responds rightly. He says... Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King of glory. Uh, If he had composed a hymn at that point, he would have no doubt preempted the words of John Newton many centuries later. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. So, uh, how do you see God this morning? How does this impact how you see yourself. You see, to comprehend what Isaiah saw more clearly is an important part of our Christian growth. It drives us to each cry out, woe is me, and to appreciate our need all the more for God's grace. Isaiah rightly cries, woe is me, and so should we. But look how God responds. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, with which he had taken with tongue from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. At the altar, of course, in the temple was the place of sacrifice. And the coal taken from the altar symbolizes that a sacrifice has been made Isaiah had confessed that he was a man of unclean lips and now one of the seraphs takes a burning coal from the altar and touches his unclean lips with it and in this one symbolic act he was cleansed from his sin the seraphs declare that your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for What wonderful words for Isaiah to hear, or indeed for any of us to hear. Your guilt is taken away. Not just the feeling of guilt, but the actual guilt before a holy God. And your sin is atoned for. Of course, atonement means that the debt of sin is covered. The price is paid. Divine justice has been satisfied through the sacrifice in an instant Isaiah was cleansed and not by his own efforts but purely by God's grace Isaiah contributed nothing it was all of God what an incredible character combination we see in God God is holy but he's not just holy God is also gracious He is full of grace. Think about it for a moment. If God was just holy but not gracious, where would that leave us? What would be the only logical response of sinners before Him? It would be this to get away, to run, to escape, to hide. But wonderfully, God is not only holy, He is also full of grace. And that makes all the difference. Sinners need not run from him. Instead, they should kneel before him with outstretched hands. It means that it is safe for sinners to admit their guilt. It means we can be real and authentic before God. God's holiness, you see, reveals that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe. And that humbles us. But God's grace shows us that we are more loved than we ever dared hope. And that gives us confidence in his presence. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence when we bow humbly before him, asking for his forgiveness and his grace. And you know, that gives Christians uh, a wonderful, solid source for their identity. Because it means our identity is grounded in grace. Uh, Nothing thereafter should really move us or shake us. You see, our sense of self-worth is not based on our performance or our abilities. And it's not based on other people's opinions of us. We are accepted by grace. And we can then rest secure in our Father's favour. And you see, that brings us great freedom. Uh, We are released from the need of the praise of people. Uh, We no longer have to be people pleasers, the foundation of grace. So, having been cleansed by God, Isaiah is then commissioned by God. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Cleansed by God's grace, the prophet now offers himself gladly for service. Woe is me leads to, here I am, send me. And that is the difference that that grace makes. If I know God's grace to me, I will want to serve God. I'll say, Lord, what can I do for you? How can I now serve you? If there's a need in my church family, I'll say, here I am, send me. If there's somebody who needs to hear the gospel, I'll say, here I am, send me. That is the effect of God's grace. We see it as a privilege to serve. So firstly, we've been introduced to the God who is holy. Secondly and finally, we see the God who hardens. Isaiah is given a very strange commission by God. Look at verse 9. He says this. Uh, He says, go and tell this people, uh, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. It's a bit of a strange message to take, isn't it? Uh, Verse 10 continues. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed how strange God sends the prophet Isaiah to make hearts hard to make ears deaf to make eyes blind that is the intended effect that his message will have people won't understand it and they will be hardened by it and why does God want this to happen Because otherwise, they would turn to him and be healed. Now at first, uh, this of course is puzzling. Why on earth would God not want people to turn to him and be healed? And the answer lies in their history. The time for that has now passed. For now, it is too late. The hour hand of the clock has continued to move to the point where it is now too late for them. For many years, these people had had every opportunity to go God's way. But what did they do? They persisted in rebelling. And so now God is closing the door. And that way, He is doing it through hardening their hearts against Him. And he's going to use the message of the prophet to make their hearts spiritually hard, to make them spiritually blind, and to make them spiritually deaf. These people have repeatedly refused to go God's way. And so in judgment on them, God hardens them so now they can no longer go God's way. Is it not a sobering insight into how God operates? Maybe when we understand this more clearly, we see how justice plays out. Because effectively, God is giving these people what their unregenerate hearts really want. If they persist in saying, I don't want to hear this, I don't want to hear this, then there comes a point where God says, okay, you will no longer be able to hear this. God gives them what they want. And it becomes a bleak an irredeemable situation. So you see, uh, God will not be mocked. If a person persistently resists God, they're actually inciting God to harden their hearts in judgment. And indeed, when we look more widely in the Bible, we see this mechanism at work throughout. Remember the Pharaoh in Exodus. God hardens his heart as Pharaoh hardens his heart against God. And indeed, this passage from Isaiah 6 is the most quoted part of Isaiah in the New Testament. Uh, It's quoted to explain the ministry of Jesus, and in particular, his parables. Uh, One reason for teaching in parables was as a judgment on those who had refused God's voice for so long. Uh, Through the parables, God hardened the heart of the scoffers. So they just dismissed them as some silly stories, and in so doing, they were further Blinded. Now, Isaiah chapter 6 is also quoted, and we saw it in our series in Acts, to explain the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Why did so many Jews reject his message? Because through it, God was at work to harden them for having refused him for so long. And so, salvation went to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So do you see the message? It's clear, is it not? The living God is awesome in majesty and holiness. He is not somebody to trifle with. It is utter folly to refuse him when he speaks. And it is self-destructive to ignore his word. And for Christians, it serves as an exhortation to respect God and to heed his word. It encourages us, doesn't it, to look at our hearts and ask, are there areas of my life where I am resisting God? Are there areas of my life where I am hardening my heart against God's word? And where we see this is the case, is it not therefore wise to repent without delay? For ultimately, God cannot be mocked. Does this not also inform our evangelism? As we share the gospel with others, is it not easy to become disheartened? Do we not sometimes feel, ah, this message isn't working. I share it with people and many of them, they just have no interest. In fact, they seem to get harder. But actually, it shows us the message is working because that is God at work. As the gospel is declared, God judges some, and saves others. That is the work of the gospel. So, what a commission for Isaiah to be given. And no wonder he asks in verse 11, how long, O Lord? And the Lord basically says, until the land is destroyed, and the people are sent into exile. The people who had refused God for so long would now be hardened, so that inevitably, destruction would come. A holy God is not to be trifled with. Those who rebel against him will, in the end, be overthrown by him. And this is what happened to the people of Judah. And so it will happen to all those over the ages who refuse him. It is perilous to mess with God. He's the living God, and He is awesome in power and in holiness. But then, thankfully, and right in the final verses, there is this glimmer of hope. Uh, the rebel people will be cut down like a tree, but a tree stump will remain. And the chapter ends with these perplexing words of hope, verse 13. And so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The holy seed is the stump. And from this stump will sprout a new shoot and new life. You see, in his mercy and in his grace, uh, God would spare a remnant from the destruction. He would spare and draw to himself a people for himself. And if you today are a follower of Jesus, then you are part of that holy stump. You are part of the remnant. It is something to be very thankful for. So in conclusion, how does this picture of God compare to the one that you have in your own mind? When people say, I like to think of God as, they tend not to come up with this sort of God. But this is the God who is really there. Looking ahead to chapter 8, verse 13 of Isaiah, it says this. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. It's showing us what a right response is to a holy God. The fear of the Lord means that we will worship him with reverence and awe. For as Hebrews 12 said, our God is a consuming fire. It means we won't be casual in how we worship him and approach him. Uh, We won't think that we can make up the rules as Uzziah thought that he could. Uh, The fear of the Lord will mean that we take sin seriously in our lives. And we won't mess about. We will keep short accounts with God. Uh, We won't see how close we can sail to the wind and what we can get away with because the fear of the Lord, as Exodus 20 says, will keep us from sinning. And the fear of the Lord will mean that we make a stand for him because we fear him more than we fear other people, as Jesus said in Matthew 10. And the fear of the Lord will mean that we cling to his grace like a drowning person clinging to a life ring, knowing that apart from his grace, we have no hope. But as we cling to that grace, we are given a sure and solid foundation for our sense of self-worth and our identity. And so, a right response to the Holy God is to fear the Lord. And as Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. It's the beginning of wisdom. A right relationship with God will be more than just fearing the Lord, but it will include fearing the Lord. We will trust him and we will love him as our heavenly father but we will also respect him as the holy God who sits on the throne in his great majesty and his great power. Shall we pray? Lord God, uh, holy, holy, holy are you. You are seated on your phone in all power and majesty and one day, uh, every eye shall behold you in all your glory and awesome majesty we thank you uh, that you are not only the holy 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 god but you are the god of grace the god who provides a way by which we can be cleansed that burning coal which effectively and ultimately is your son on the cross thank you for grace that undeserved gift of your favor and your forgiveness And we pray that each of us here would revel in that grace, would cling to that grace and allow that grace to more deeply transform us as people that would be increasingly secure in that identity we then have as loved children through Christ. That we wouldn't be held victim to the opinions of others and the praises of others, be released from that slavery to being people-pleasers, to being people who serve you with joy and wholehearted lives. Amen.